Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Power Hungry Podcast. I'm Robert Bryce. On this podcast, we talk about energy, power, innovation, and politics. And I think we're going to touch on all of those today with my guest, Brent Bennett, who is coming back for his second appearance on the Power Hungry Podcast. Brent, welcome back. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for coming me on again. Now, I didn't introduce you. You are the, if I'm correct, Policy Director for Life Powered at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Is that correct? Yep, still am. Still. And your your last on the podcast, in fact, it was two years ago, almost exactly two years ago uh, mm-hmm. in uh, early 2022. Um, so you've been on the podcast. I, I think you've listened to it a couple of times. You know that guests on the podcast introduce themselves. So if you don't mind, uh, please introduce yourself. Imagine you arrived somewhere, you don't know anyone, and you have about 60 seconds. Go. Yeah. I wish I was as good at this as uh, Jason Isaac, our director. But uh, anyway, no, I, I um, born and raised in Texas, son of an oil and gas entrepreneur. Uh, so energy is in my blood. Um, you know, grew up in Midland and uh, but wanted to do something different in college. So I actually uh, in college and grad school. So I ended up becoming uh, got to getting a Ph.D. in material science and studying batteries. So different different side of the energy business. Uh, did that. My first job out of school was working with a company here. Actually, we were helping to build, primarily build uh, hybrid vehicle batteries. Uh, we were a materials supplier. So that was, uh, that's kind of my, my entree into the, the world of EVs and batteries was through my school and also um, my first job out of school. Through a circuitous route, uh, ended up um, taking this job in policy uh, mostly because I just didn't want to leave Austin. I'm sure you know how that is, right? You get stuck here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And uh, but if uh, after five years, I'm still doing it. So it's been it's been a great ride. And and um, you know now here we are after five years. I finally published a paper on EVs, and it gets more press than anything we've ever done. So uh, you know it's kind of I guess the the battery the battery world is coming back to back into my life in a certain way. So. Great to great to get to you know do that and to talk to folks like you about it and you've done so much great work on EVs yourself writing about it that you know I wanted you know really wanted to come on here and talk about that so sure a lot of well, fun to do. and and when we've talked about material science and batteries before when we've you know chatted here in Austin over lunch and and uh, I think we talked about them the last time you're on the podcast um, and your new report is called Overcharged Expectations you co-wrote it with Jason Isaac. Uh, overcharged expe- expectations, unmasking the true costs of electric vehicles. Um, so I've I've read the report, um, but I'll let you. I mean, what are the th- if, if you had sixty seconds again? Not that we're going to talk for an hour, but what what was what did you find in this report, and what did it, what did you find along with Jason? What did you find that most surprised you? Because this report has been attacked by you know the the you know EV supporters, of course. Uh, it's gotten some track, you know, good traction. But what did you find that surprised you? Yeah, um, you know, we wrote the report because we knew that there was a lot more to the story than just the seventy five hundred dollar federal tax credit, right? right? And the other things that uh, that have been added by the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so it wasn't a surprise to us that you know we, um, you know uncovered more with regard to you know how the regulatory scheme of the fuel economy uh, regulations how that's benefit used to benefit electric vehicles and subsidize them and the utility costs but I think it just surprises to to what degree um, those costs exceed the7500 dollars tax credit right that's the smallest piece of the pie 
in a sense, in, in what we're paying to support EV production and also uh, the charging of EVs. So in terms um, of the social, in terms of the socialized costs, right? I mean, there the are socialized costs, right? The, pri- yeah. the private, um, it's, that's, the pri- it's the privatized savings versus the socialized costs. But I mean, yeah. if I were going to, you know, as I looked at it, you, you arrived a couple of different ways, but the, the total cost, um, you said adding the cost of the subsidies to the true cost of fueling an EV equates to an, for an EV owner paying $17.33 per gallon of gasoline. And then that number seemed to be the one you also calculated at $16.12. Um, you know, those are big numbers. And that, I think, was what got yeah. you know, one of the reasons why the paper got the attention that it did. W- walk us through yeah. why those numbers are so high, because they are the attention grabbers, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And and it's it comes out to, it's a little easier to imagine, you know, it comes out to about $50,000 per average EV as what the the cost of these, and not just the tax credits, but all the other regulatory favors and implicit subsidies, right? Um, and yeah, and, and we, we put it in terms of the, the you know, the, the cost of fueling an EV in a sense, because not all of it is is subsidies for charging, right? They're, right. They're, those do exist. That That's you know that's about twenty uh, percent of that twenty to twenty five percent of that a number is actually subsidies for fueling it right the kind of the uh the socialized costs of infrastructure on the grid um and and the the direct subsidies for fueling infrastructure things like that right um but it just you know again what we really wanted to to do is kind of put it in terms of a lifetime cost of owning an e v right because that's what so much of, of the people promoting EVs say is like, well, it's more expensive to buy, but it's cheaper to fuel, it's cheaper to maintain. So over the course of the lifetime of an EV, it kind of comes out even, right? And we cite a study that basically to that effect in the paper. Um, but we kind of wanted to say, well, yeah, but if you were to, you know, take the the you know socialized cost, right, and add that to you could add it to just the production cost, right, and say, okay, it's fifty thousand dollars more. But what if we just said, well, what if you what if you were to take this and make it a uh, you know a, a lifetime fueling cost, right? And that's and that's where we got the seventeen dollars per gallon number from, right? Is it basically say, well, if you if you wrap all these subsidies into just like a, a fueling subsidy, they're not right. The, some of them are subsidies for producing the cars, right? The regulatory favors is a, is a production subsidy, basically, right? Um, yeah. But if you just put it all in terms of in terms of fueling costs, just as to get a single number that's you know kind of people can relate to, right? It's the equivalent of like saying you're charging your EV, you know if you were to pay for all the costs, it's like you're charging your EV at seventeen dollars a gallon, right? And they say you know and the the they say that it's more like you know a dollar fifty a gallon, right? But right. that's not you know a that's not true in and of itself, and b if you add all the socialized costs, then then you're you're talking about a lot more than that. So that's kind of how we we put it in those terms. And I think people, uh, based on the reaction to the paper, I think both positive and negative people can relate to that. They can relate right. to just how big that cost is, right? When you put it in those terms, yeah. Especially when what that national average of gasoline today is what's you know three bucks and change or something like that. You know, it's in yeah. the neighborhood. I mean, today it was uh-huh. two seventy or something. You know, you see those prices posted all the time. Um, but one of the other things that seems to me in this paper came out now last year, it was October of last year, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, the the EV hype seems like it's just starting to really subside. I mean, I'm looking at the stock char- uh, stock price chart for ChargePoint Holdings, which is one of the companies that was, you know, went public and claimed they're going to make a lot of money building EV chargers 
uh, over the last yeah. year, uh, their price stock price has gone from twelve dollars to now it's two dollars flat, two dollars even right today, at down eighty three percent over the past year. So, it, 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 I'll ask the question this way: Is so is the media hype around EVs really starting to collide with reality? Is this what is it all the confluence of all these issues around insurance, around higher cost of ownership? Hertz just announced it's dumping twenty thousand EVs. Uh, Ford, of course, is you know getting killed on their EV business, losing mm -hmm. between sixty and seventy thousand dollars per vehicle they sell. Um, is it the con the 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 collision of all these things to use an automotive term that's that's causing this la this uh, fallout in the EV space? Yeah, and of course, no one's written more better about it, I think, than you have. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 just all those things you said. It's it's really what's happening. You know, traditionally, we want good public policy uh, comes after technology, right? So, for example, if you look at the the Clean Air Act or the you know the the original fuel economy standards, right? Those were designed to say, okay. We're only going to implement regulations that are based on known technology, existing technology, right? We're not going to use the regulations to try and force technology, right? We're not using subsidies to try and force technology. And the mentality, uh, especially in the federal government, you know, in the last 20 years or so has changed to where now we want to use technology and or regulations and subsidies to try and drive technology adoption or creation, right? There's this idea that the government can somehow do that, right? But the problem, especially in energy, is that you run into basic physics and economics, right? Um, you have the physics of EVs, the materials it takes to build them. Um, even as you, you know, gain economies of scale, there's still underlying, you know, cost of the batteries and the materials, and it's hard for automakers to overcome that. And then you have the economics of, you know, consumer behavior, what consumers want, how much they're willing to pay for things, right? So that those two things, you can't, there's no policy that can influence that unless you just have the government go and purchase all the EVs, right? Right. Because you could give them away for free. Um, but but then you, then you create a problem of, you know, immense debt, right? So there's always economics and physics always govern what happens in the energy sector, right? As you know very well. And so I think well, that's just well, what's I like that what you said about the, the tech. Well, yeah. if I'm going to rephrase what you just said and correct me if I'm misapprehending, but I like that idea of technology should be leading the policy instead of the other way around. Instead, we've got mm -hmm. policy trying to force the technology into the marketplace. And what I mm -hmm. see at this moment now in early 2024 um, is that consumer that the automakers are looking around and saying, huh. Maybe consumers don't want these vehicles, and they're so they're backpedaling in a big way and taking big losses. But a lot of those losses are going to be absorbed by taxpayers now. But the part that just leaves me stunned, really, Brent, is if I look at the automakers just as businesses, right, and talking about technology versus policy, that they didn't seem like they didn't understand the market very well. Now I'm setting aside all yeah. the issues in your paper, but. Why didn't they understand that the market for EVs is going to be very limited? Because that's what it looks like to me is that the hype is colliding with reality and the automakers are looking around and saying, oh, not everybody wants one. And so I mean, has that occurred to you or have you given much thought to that about what the automakers themselves as business people thinking, oh, well, we'll just force feed these into the market or it was because they were told by government? How do you how do you see the automakers role in this? Yeah. 
No, that's a great question. I was actually thinking about that same question as you were right before you said it. So you're reading my mind. Um, and I was actually, the last time I did a podcast on EVs, I was opposite the chief sustainability officer at GM. And the point I made was is that, you know, the point I made was exactly that, that the market for EVs is going to be limited. And it's okay for if GM says, okay, I want to go out and try and capture that market. Um, the problem is when we try to force that with government policy, right? So that's, you know, and, and to force everyone into an EV, right? Um, it's okay to say that EVs are going to grow, you know, EVs are going to be a big part of the market and they're going to have a big market segment. I think they will in, in time, um, especially for, you know, commuter vehicles, people like me who, you know, commute seven, eight miles to their office every day. And, you know, that's about it for the most part, right? Um, so, but there's a lot of things, you know, that EVs are not as good for long distance travel, um, hauling, um, you know, like the guys that come and, you know, mow your lawn and having to haul a trailer, right? That's not a very good application for an EV, right? I mean, right. yeah, Ford has their F-150 Lightning. They can do that. But, you know, you're, you're, the cost of the battery for that gets more and more expensive the bigger it gets, right? So it's just there's fundamental limitations as to how big that market's going to get. So I think that's really the problem is that I think, um, you know, the, the, exec, you know, the executives are, are not looking at the whole market. And they also, you know, they also have to cater to investors who are demanding you know, that they virtue signal and do the right thing with regard to EVs, right? They've all got to have their net zero plans now, right? Everyone has to have that. Well, how do you, you're not going to get net zero with just hybrids, right? right? Um, so you've got to go all in with EVs. And I think that mentality, again, that mentality was just that, well, we're going to figure it out, you know, um, some way the technology is going to come and we'll make this happen. And they're realizing now like, oh, like maybe it'll come eventually, but not in the next 10 years, right? And so now they're starting to backpedal. So I yeah. think it's executives in the same, in some way, and I saw this in the, you know, the executive that I was opposite to in this last podcast, I think they had the same problem as policymakers of thinking, well, we can, you know, we can drive the technology adoption. Like we can, and it's just, that's not how, as a, as a, as a PhD scientist or former one, at least, like that's not how it works. You know, you, you, it's the, the process of technology creation and adoption is is very um we have a word stochastic meaning random yeah you know um you, you come across things and it takes time um developing new battery technologies and bringing them to market takes at least 10 years usually and that's how it was true for the lithium-ion battery in the 1980s and 90s and it's still true today um so well, i think well, that's let's, let's, well, let's that's what we're coming into yeah sure well let's talk about batteries some because uh, you know, I, I say about batteries, they're kind of like Goldilocks, right? Can't be too hot. Can't be too cold. Can't charge them too fast. Can't yeah. do, everything has to be just right. Just so, right. Yeah. All so, balanced. Right. But it also, it's just, they're finicky. Right. And I thought one of the funniest things was in January, what was it several weeks ago when it was super cold in Chicago and there were news stories about people with Tesla's finding, Oh, my car doesn't work when it's really cold and they are having trouble charging them. And I thought, well, who would have ever yeah. thought about this? I mean, gee, imagine, you know, the EV doesn't work as well in cold temperatures. So you've worked in the battery space, which gives you a different perspective on this. And we both know, uh, uh, David Sadaway, right? Is that right? Or, uh, no, um, Donald Sadaway, Donald Sadaway at MIT, MIT yeah. who I met 15 or 20 years ago. And I've followed his work since then, right? He had the, the nickel, the hot molten metal battery that never was commercialized. And we talked about batteries and yeah. well, one of the best you, out there, in my opinion, he's, he's yeah. really good. No, Donald Sadaway's great, but 
for all of his work and all of his effort, he still has a commercialized battery, right? I mean, just for all mm -hmm. of that work, right? And he's a very smart yep. guy, and I've I've had him on the podcast. What is the problem with batteries? What? Did, why are? Why don't they work better now? Why haven't we had this eureka moment in in a hundred years or more now a hundred and twenty years of EV history? Why do batteries yeah. still suck? Yeah. <laughs> well, and and you, you make you make a great point. I mean, yeah, the the hundred twenty years of history. I mean. You know, there was a time back in Edison's days when people thought that cars were going to be electric, right? yeah. that, that electric was the future. Um, and it turns out that, uh, you know, the gasoline makes for a much better fuel than electricity. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that's the problem is that, um, you know, the, the energy density of gasoline, the, um, you know, the portability of it. Um, the resiliency of it, right. It, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, boil off or freeze at anywhere close to room temperature. Right. So you yeah. have a wide temperature range for it. And I can just go on and on about how, how good of a fuel it is. Right. Yeah. Now the, the flip side is that, you know, gasoline engines are not nearly as efficient at converting that gasoline energy into movement as electric yep. engines are. Electric right. engines are very are very efficient, right? Yeah. And they have sure. certain advantages to them. They have, you know, work really good at low speeds, right? Really efficient and, and have a lot of torque at low speeds. I mean, if you've ever driven a Tesla, I, I imagine you have. I mean, the acceleration is incredible, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But again, the, the, the problem of trying to store electricity, you know, as a, and in, 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 in give and in, in do that in a way that is comparable to the way that energy is stored in gasoline is just really difficult. And, you know, physically, we'll never quite reach the energy density of gasoline in a battery. Uh, it's just not possible unless we invent new elements in the periodic table. It's not going to happen. So that's, we're limited there. Um, the charging so, time. So, is, is I, so let me interrupt you. Something so, that is, but, you know, limited by physics, right? So but, that's, I guess that's why it's like we're, you know, we're we're running up against over over time. We're running closer and closer to these limits, these hard physical limits on what batteries can do. And so each increment of improvement gets harder and harder. That's why, you know, it's still you know, like I said, it took ten years to develop the first lithium ion battery, and every new iteration of the lithium ion battery since then still takes ten years to develop, because each iteration gets harder and harder as we get up closer to those physical limits. You know, so that's why it's 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 so batteries are getting better, but there's just limits to how good they can be, right? But what are those limits? I mean, you're, you're a material science guy. So tell my mom, tell me why batteries still yeah. suck. Why Why is it? What is it about the battery itself that we just haven't been able to improve? What is it about the thing of yeah. that thing that we, well, you said the limits of physics. Well, what? how do you explain that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and you talk a lot about power density. I know you have a whole talk about that, but really it's 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 two things. One is, how much energy can you get into the battery, right? So that's limited by the materials that you can use, right? There's only so many electrons, electricity that you can pump into a battery and store it there in the form of chemical bonds, right? And there um, so are, that's and the there only a few. And, and to follow up on the, your idea on the periodic table, there are only a few metals that are efficient at that or that are useful for that right. process, right? So mm -hmm. as, as right. Sadaway says, you've got a, what do you call it? An assay, right? You can assay the periodic table to see which ones are the ones that are likely to be good. So you have a, a limited yeah. number of elements that you can work with to make the thing, to make the battery, right? Then, and it's a very mm -hmm. few specific metals and lithium is one of them, right? And so that's right. I mean, and, li and lithium is the lightest metal in the periodic table. So we're not going to get any lighter than that. Now we might can use like sodium or aluminum that have some other properties that make them better. They're more stable. 
um, and particularly aluminum. You can maybe charge charge your battery faster, but you're not going to get any lighter or more energy dense than what you get from lithium. Like that's mm -hmm. it, right? Gotcha. Um, it's the lightest element out there, and so, and so, yeah. There's only so many electrons that you can store in a lithium compound, right? So that's the energy density limit, and then it, and then also the, the 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 power the power density limit is how fast can you pull those out, right? So it's only you can only break bonds so quickly and pull electricity out so quickly or put it in, right? Right. Um, so, and 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 oftentimes those two things are counter to each other. If you can store more energy in a battery, but a lot of times in order to do that, you have to give up. Uh, charging time because you have to make the battery thicker. You have to, um, you know, change the design. There's just, you know, those two things kind of energy density and power density kind of work against each other. And, um, and yeah, and so that's, and so again, like we can make nowadays batteries that are more energy dense than what exists in commercial developed, right? I can go in the lab and make one, right? But it's not going to charge, it's going to have to charge really slow. Right. right. Or I can make a battery that charge really fast. Heck, a capacitor, um, you know, which is just two metal plates basically that hold charge between them. You, we use capacitors in, in, in electric cars nowadays to help accelerate, to like to get that real quick charge out of them. Right. 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 Like those, right. those are, those are really good at, at, you know, charging and discharging really quick. But again, they don't hold a lot of energy. Right. Um, so and I like the way, I like the way you talk about that, that, that yang, you know, is, is about to be balanced. Right. So it's that that well, I was going to say yin and yang, the choreography or the ba the balance between energy density and power density, and you're going to have trade offs mm -hmm. if you go too far one way or too far the mm -hmm. other way. And so yeah. now there's talking. And we're about improving both, but again, it's it's at a it's at a very um, th that the rate of improvement it gets harder and harder each step because you run up against there's only, there's physical limits to how much energy you can store. There's physical limits to how fast you can pull it out. Right. So um, that's you know I think. We're improving those things, but each step of improvement gets harder than the last one. And so it's fundamentally just slow, a slow process. And it always will be. And and that is due, as you talked about before, about the just the limits of the physics and breaking the chemical bonds and putting them back and, and the charge recharge, all those things that are colliding mm -hmm. in a now in a battery pack that for an automobile weighs a thousand pounds and it doesn't matter yeah. that's the other part that uh, jesse Osabel calls them soviet cars right and i he had a funny idea about it well <laughs> it's that and he and he made that point because he said well look whether they're full or, or empty they weigh the same right so it doesn't yeah. matter oh well they're fully charged it weighs a thousand pounds they're empty they weigh a he thousand has a great pounds. way with words yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought that was an interesting way to think right. about the vehicle itself yeah. as a, uh, as a thing, right. That this, this, um, uh, mm -hmm. you, you've got this burden of weight that is in, in just part of the characteristics of the battery itself. Whereas with jet fuel or gasoline, you're, you're burning it, right. The vehicle, the, the, the plane is getting lighter the further you go. Right. And it's not yeah. in the overall weight of given, you know, yeah, it's what six and a half pounds a gallon, something like that for gasoline. But you know, the, the equivalent weight for in batteries of that gallon of gasoline is massive. I don't know what the multiple is, what uh, volume or on a gravimetric density basis, what 40 X, something like that. Yeah. 40 to hundred X lower for batteries versus gasoline. Right. right? So right. yeah. And you've got to haul that weight around with you everywhere, you know? 
Um, so that's that's the thing. That's I mean that's why you know Teslas weigh a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds more than your comparable sedan, right? Right. Uh, and so that that's that's an efficiency loss. You know our 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 new colleague Mark Mills um, at the foundation. You know he he has a great paper about the environmental impacts of EVs um, or the or the, the lack of environmental benefits, right? Um, and that's one of the things he talks about is that um, you know there's not just there's there's the embodied emissions and making the battery in the car, right? That there's a lot of emissions that go into that and energy that goes into that. Right. But then also, you know, yes, you're, you know, you're using emission, you're using electricity, right? So there's no emissions at the vehicle and, and your electric motor is very efficient, but on the back end, but you're having a, you're hauling a lot of weight around, right. you know? And so you're, that takes a lot of energy. That energy is coming from a power plant somewhere else that is likely burning fossil fuels, unless you're in like the Pacific Northwest where you have hydro, um, <clears throat> that's likely burning fossil fuels. So there's a lot of emissions there. And in, in, in your, your actually your, your, your energy benefit that you from the efficiency of your electric motor is somewhat lost from the fact that you're hauling a lot of weight around and you're having to burn some kind of fuel back here and transmit it into the car you know, before it actually, before you actually turn that into motion, right? So there's not really a lot of efficiency gain in the whole system, right? Right. Um, even though electric motors are very efficient. And so the environmental impact is basically a, a wash in the end. You look at carbon emissions, you look at, um, you know, particulate emissions and other things. It's, 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 it's sort of a wash and yeah. that's, Yeah. Well, and as I looked That's at your right pa- looked at your paper, and I thought, okay, well, so I've written about you know EVs now for fifteen years or so, and you know just been been a skeptic all the way, right? Because of one, the long history, and I uh, I published it on my Substack, and I think you saw it, but it was just and, and testified before the Senate. Mm-hmm. Look, you know the, the 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 Los Angeles Times was talking about this in nineteen oh one, right? <laughs> it's no, yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. But as I yeah. read your paper, and I don't, I don't. This is just an observation, not a criticism. You don't even mention China. So you, you know, we mm-hmm. have the Chinese supply chains. You're talking about the subsidies and the costs, societal costs, socialized costs. Mills' work is on mining and upstream issues around the the metals and the inputs, right? So there are all these different facets of the EV, the the network system, the network of networks, right? That is required to produce them and then deliver them and so on. And it's an yeah. incredibly complex set of issues that are colliding right there with in this one uh, kind of iconic now idea around, oh, well, we're just going to electrify transportation. We're going to electrify everything. As you yeah. look back at this now and you look at, you know, the media coverage of your report and, you know, your history and batteries and and dealing with this, why has there been so much media hype around this? And second, why do, I'm going to say the Democrats and the, this administration, why are they so in love with this idea of the EV? What is it about this, the thing that they're so attracted to? Yeah, like it, it's kind of almost, uh, it's almost religious, right? In the way that there's this attachment to it, despite, like I said, the data that's out there that, you know, even even in terms of achieving the net zero goals, right, which is ostensibly the purpose, right, right of, of EVs, that um, that they they probably aren't going to make a huge dent. I mean, you're you're only talking, you know, you know, probably passenger cars make up, you know, roughly ten to fifteen percent of all of our carbon emissions, and if we can electrify all of that, that would be a darn near a miracle. Right. You know, not to mention heavy duty transportation, trains, airplanes, ships, you know, right. all the other stuff. Right. So, yeah, it's 
it's it's um that's a great question that i've never really thought about is like why is like with wind and solar i think we could talk about that as kind of the religious fascination behind that which is that um there's this you know there's the the renewable nature of it right like some like there's a very strong ideology going back to you know the early part of the 20th century and the start of the industrial even the start of the industrial revolution that somehow there's something unnatural about our use of fossil fuels right you know and and because because we're burning them and we have to re- constantly replenish them, we're eventually going to run out. And that's so therefore they they have a, a in the long run, they're bad for the environment because of that. Right. That was right. long before climate change became an issue. Climate change is in, in a way, I think, an issue that was created to feed the, the ideology that already existed. Right. Once we solve the problems of particulate pollution and things like that, um, then climate change became a big issue. Um, so wind and solar kind of have that you know, nature where they, again, because they, even though the materials to create them aren't renewable because the fuel is renewable, therefore they, they have a, you know, they're, they're fundamentally better. Right. Right. Um, I've never been able to figure that out with EVs except just to just the fact that EVs run on electricity, right. Um, That, you know, so therefore EVs are better because they run on electricity and you can power that electricity from wind and solar, which is the, 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 you know, the holy fuels. Right. Um, That's (laughs) yeah. Cause it's, you know, there's nothing, um, again, there, there's not, there's nothing renewable about electric vehicle compared to, um, a gas vehicle, except that it uses electricity instead of gasoline. Right. Right. Um, otherwise the components are mostly the same. Um, and except for, you know, the, the engine and the battery. Right. Yeah. Um, and certainly and every, and nobody fools themselves that batteries are renewable. Right. I mean, we can recycle, you know, granted, I think we're going to get a lot better at recycling them. I mean, lead acid batteries, your car starter battery. 95% of that is recycled. Yeah. The plastic, the lead, everything. I think we'll get there with lithium ion batteries eventually. It's a lot harder problem to solve than lead acid. You can't just melt the plates down and right. you know and then reform them the way you do with lead acid, but I think we'll get there eventually. I actually had a conversation recently with a guy in uh Indiana who's working on this right now. He's got a really cool technology for taking lithium and other metals out of batteries and all kinds of stuff. M- magnets um, they recycle rare, rare earth magnets, um, but it's still it's still going to take a ton of mining to do this. So yeah, it's I, I've my my long winded answer there is to say that I don't really have an answer for why the just the religious attachment to EVs um, versus, for example, if we went to hybrids, um, you know, suppose suppose we had a policy of of you know subsidizing hybrids to the degree that we subsidize EVs these days. You know, I mean, hybrids get you know twenty five hundred dollar tax credit roughly. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, you know they don't get they don't get fueling subsidies the way that EVs get charging subsidies. They don't, um, you know, they don't uh, benefit that much from the fuel economy regulations the way the fuel uh, EVs do, right? But we're still selling more hybrids and EVs in this country, and you can make a hybrid battery using one fiftieth to one hundredth of the materials that it takes to it's to, to you to make an EV battery. It's that much smaller, right? And you get a and you get a, you know. A fifty to a hundred percent bump in your fuel efficiency right. of your vehicle by doing that. So if you want to talk about what's best for the you know for reducing emissions, hybrids went out by a long shot. You yeah, know? and there was a time, and there was a time you know when they were the more popular item I, on the environmental left. I think I think because um, even then EVs were not were so far fetched, right? That right. 
Um, you know, and, Tesla and the, had and the, and the yeah. Prius became kind of that iconic vehicle for the right. The Prius, the, you know, the Prius was the 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 you know the Tesla Model S before Tesla existed, right? right. <laughs> it was That's the who, it was the it car to have if you wanted to virtue signal, right? Right. But the funny thing is that there are real advantages to hybrids. Um, yeah. Like I said, I, I worked on you know building hybrid batteries, um, so I'm very aware of that. So yeah, it's it's interesting how the again, that religious kind of fascination attachment to EVs has now taken over to where even hybrids are considered, you know, no, they're not really, you know, they're not really that clean, um, right. even though they're actually cleaner. Well, and it's interesting. And I saw in your report that you cited the work from Toyota, which I thought was key that, you know, here's yeah. Toyota, which is a very successful automobile company, right? And just, there's no arguing their long-term success. Um, and they've been skeptical about full on, uh, you know, fully electric vehicles for decades. And they have, and I was at a meeting in Dallas last year where they said, yeah, that we could build 90, 90 hybrids for the amount of rare earth elements that are in one, uh, BEV. And so why are we doing this? And they were making these points fully a year ago. Now they've, they published on that. Even before uh, that, I mean, they've been doing it, making those points for five, 10 years. Yeah. It's. So it's yeah. just interesting they, to see how this, this split in, among the automakers in this this belief, oh, we have to chase Tesla. And T- Toyota said, we're not going to chase Tesla. We, we know who our customers are, and we're not going to do mm-hmm. this. Whereas Mary Barra, I will you know, point her, you said you were you're debating the guy at GM, and you know, she makes this big pronouncement, the stock gets a big bump. And, but, you know, she's only there for a little while. So I, I guess, you know, going yeah. back to the idea why the automakers did this, I think it's partly, well, their CEOs know they're only there for a little while and they're going to, you know, they have to make a bump somehow. They have to talk the talk the walk or walk the talk or whatever it is. They have to hype out their new products and maybe they get a stock bump for if they do so. But I mean, mm-hmm. what do you see if you look at GM and this does not, it's not your report, you you know, your report very much, your report is very much focused on the subsidy side. What's going to happen with yeah. Ford and, 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 and GM the two, I, the, the last of the big three that are the iconic American automakers, are they going to have to write their investments down? What do you think is going to win the future for them? Yeah. Well, I, I hope, I hope the future is not taxpayers bailing them out. Um, yeah. cause that's certainly, you know, it's been done, it's been done already. So it's not sure. like we wouldn't do it again. Right. Um, we can, we can, so there, there, to me, that's a, that's a real possibility setting that aside. Um, I think that they're, you know, ultimately, um, Ultimately, they they will have to bow to physics and economics and find their niche within the space. I mean, you got to give Tesla credit. They um, they really out engineered the other auto companies. I mean, they they built a, a better system for you know basically taking the the battery the limitations of the battery and working around that. Right now, there's still things they haven't solved, which is charging time, you know, cold and hot weather operation, et cetera. But they solved a lot of the problems that the other automakers could not solve initially and built a better mousetrap. And so they, I think, I think what and, happened and was, is. And was that because they had a clean sheet of paper because they didn't have the legacy systems that they had to yeah. adapt to them? I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they built their drivetrain and their, um, their charging system from the ground up. Um, and they weren't burdened by, and they, they had better engineers. I think that's really a lot of it, you know, and they, they just out, like I said, they out engineered them. And they also, I think the other thing they did was they saw that the luxury segment was ripe for the kind of performance benefits of EVs and also the virtue signaling, right. Um, 
you know, and so that I think, I think that they, and they very smartly went after that first. Now they're trying to dip down now because they're running out of, they're running out of room too, right? Their sales growth is slowing. They've got to dip into the larger market segments now, start cutting their prices, get, you know, the model three and more, you know, mass market EVs, but it's tough. I mean, they're, they're running into that problem too. And I think the other automakers, I think what happened was, is they incorrectly kind of, and, and I think a lot of investors too. I mean, the reason Tesla is worth so, so much, the market cap is so enormous is everyone still thinks that, um, that EVs are going to be able to capture all these other market segments. Right. And I think what you and I as, as students of more students of physics and economics and who have, you know, even though we're not in the car business, we've been at this a long time, longer than some you know people in the car business have been at it can see the trends and say, yeah, there's going to be limits to this. And I don't think, you know, a lot of people still understand that, right? That there's limits to what the usefulness of EVs. So I think that's just where they got. So I think they'll eventually have to, again, they'll eventually have to bow to physics and economics. And can they do that soon enough and readjust their businesses in a way that they can survive and doesn't, you know, require us to bail them out, you know? Right. And well, public policy also, I mean, that's the other thing too. I mean, public policy could, that's kind of the, one of the premises of my paper is that our policies are going to force them into bankruptcy. Um, if they, you know, if we don't adjust, right. If we're, right. if we main, if we, if we, if we go along the path that the, you know, the fuel economy regulations are setting us now, um, if you look at 2027 and beyond, um, I don't, I can't think of any automaker outside of Tesla that's going to survive that. Anyone making gas vehicles is going to, to try and get to where, you know, 50, 60% of our vehicles are, are EVs by the end of this decade, that's going to send everyone into bankruptcy. And that's, that's what I fear. So I hope that we can tamp that back. That's the hope with this paper is that we can reel some of that back and get some realism back into this and get, again, get back to where the policy is following the technology instead of the other way around, you know? Yeah. No, I, I like the way that you, you're 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 framing that too. The technology, you know, the technology has to come first, and the policy afterwards. I'm just looking at the stock price chart for Tesla here. Uh, in uh, let me see, late 2021, it was the stock price was $400. Today, it's selling for under 200. Um, so it's yeah. down. And I think uh, that's a that's a reflection of the fact that there are there are some Tesla investors who still believe the the that it should be four hundred dollars, you know. Yeah. Um, and that four hundred dollars is based on Tesla dominating the market, you know. Yeah. And becoming the number one automaker in the world, supplanting Toyota, right? Um, but and, the market cap is nearly. And, but, then, six, but then that's that's being balanced now by people who realize like no, nah, that's might might not happen, you know. So right. that's dragging their price down, right? Well, and their stock price or their market cap is nearly six hundred billion dollars. Toyota's three hundred and twenty-eight billion. Um, yeah. Ford, I think, is well less than a hundred billion. Yeah, forty-seven billion. Yeah. And you know, mm-hmm. here Ford, you know, has the most popular vehicle in America, the Ford F one fifty. You know, but but it's just I, I think it is a sad story that Ford made such massive miscalculations in the market. And I've made the point in my Senate testimony, and we've talked about that before, yeah. but that half of the EVs in America are going into a handful of heavily democratic counties and it's yeah. and, and locations that it's a, it's an identity vehicle as much as uh, yes, it's a performance vehicle and it's a luxury vehicle and so on. But it's about, uh, that was the other part that to me leaves me gobsmacked is that the automakers didn't look at this and think and understand the market and realize, Oh, it's really only Democrats who are going to buy this car. And, that, yeah. and that's, and that's the Cal Berkeley report that came out last year. That's, Oh, who's going to buy this? Well, it's almost all Democrats, right? Republicans by and large <laughs> don't want them, which 
is amazing to me that the automakers wouldn't understand the marketplace to understand, well, we can't just cater to this one segment of the market that is in heavy, in very liberal democratic counties. That's not a business plan, but I, I, yeah. I, I, I digress. Okay. So let me play devil's advocate for just a minute. How do you respond? I'm just throw this in there. So, Oh, uh, here's Brent, here's Brent Bennett. You know, he's TPPF, you know, they get money from the oil and gas industry. Of course they're crapping all over EVs. Um, you know, yeah. this is no surprise because that was, of course, some of the, you know, I've read some of the press criticism. Well, oh, yes, here's TPPF, you know, Texas Public Policy Foundation in Texas, right? You know, a bunch of oil and gas guys. What a surprise. They're, they, they're written a, they've written a report critical of electric vehicles. How do you respond yeah. to something like that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, you know, that, that's why I focus on the subsidies. I, we, we have no problem with EVs. It's, we have problem with government trying to force policy through regulation and try to force people to buy products through, you know, regulations and subsidies, right? right. That's, that's against our core principles, right? Um, if, if the government was doing the same thing with gasoline vehicles, then uh, we'd be equally opposed to that, right? If, it was, yeah. if we were trying, they're trying to force everyone to buy a certain kind of gas vehicle. Um, so I think that's, that's fundamentally what it is. And, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm a battery guy. I, I love the technology. I love working on batteries. I might do it again sometime in the future. Um, so I think it's, it's not about the technology. And I think the problem, part of the problem is that the, the, the subsidies and all the favor favoritism from the government toward EVs is what's made it politicized. Right. And also kind of the religious identity, the religious nature of the, the, progressive left's attachment to electric vehicles is what's made it so politicized, right? And if you if you if you could take that away and just look at EVs as a really cool luxury option, you know, that some people want to buy, I think that's great. You know, it's a great it's a great thing that batteries have gotten good enough now to where they're they're um, you know worthwhile for some people to put them in a car, right? right. It's the fact right. that the government has is trying to force this on everyone that I think has created the political divide and is also the reason why we're, you know, writing about it and making a big stink about it. Gotcha. So in short, I would, uh, how I'd paraphrase that, um, it should be consumer pull, not, not government push, I guess would be yeah. another way to think about mm -hmm. it. That's right. Right. Yeah. So we talked about EVs. We should be free to, we should be free to choose what we buy. The government should be telling us what to buy, you know? Right. And, and yet here's, but it's in, in California, it's the CARB, the administrative state is the one that's mandating electric vehicles here in the U S now. Yeah. Uh, it's not Congress who's saying you, you know, limiting or ordering the automakers. This is a proposed rule from the EPA that would, could lead or yeah. could force automakers by 2032, right. To sell two thirds of their vehicles as fully mm -hmm. electric. Um, that's right. Well, so let's shift gears a little bit because we're talking about electricity and we haven't talked about the grid. And I know you've been yeah. uh, very focused on that and we're both in Texas and uh, we uh, I was blacked out in 2021. So we're coming on uh, 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 right about the three-year anniversary of Winter Storm Uri. Um, and I know uh, TPPF has been involved in trying to get legislation passed and, and reform to make the grid more resilient. Is the Texas grid in better shape now than it was three years ago? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no, I would say. Um, have we fixed a lot of the things that went wrong during URI? I think last week was a sign that we're doing better on that. Or, uh -huh. Sorry, it was two weeks ago now, the, winter, the storm we had two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, we had great performance from uh, the, the gas and coal fleet. Um, and, um, 
course, it helped we didn't have any ice. So right. We also had, you know, wind and solar were fine because we didn't have any ice. But we had, you know, basically as good a performance two weeks ago as we as we do out of the fleet during the summer. Uh-huh. And so that's a really good sign. Now, granted, it was, again, it was 10 degrees warmer than during winter storm Uri, and we didn't have any snow or ice right. to speak of. Yeah. Um, now, my flight through Houston got canceled on that Monday because they closed the airport, but that's just Texas being Texas. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The power plants, the power plants are running fine, you know? So I, th- I think, I think, you know, that uh, a lot of that I think is, is being solved. Um, and that's, you know, credit to everyone in the industry for, for, you know, working on that and doing it, but the market is still broken. Um, and we haven't really, <clears throat> we've barely added any net new dispatchable capacity, um, and by dispatchable, I mean, you know, gas, coal, and, you know, to some extent, batteries right. are dispatchable, we, barely any since the storm. Meanwhile, we've had winter demand growth. I mean, we're, you know, we're probably at least seven, eight percent higher demand than we were 10 years, three years ago. Right. Um, it's growing at like winter demand is growing faster than summer demand, really. Yeah. Um, it's growing at a rate of like three to four percent a year. Um, and, that's, so, and that's because of the the heavy reliance on on electric heating yes. in Texas, right? Versus gas heating, right? Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was just reading about you know how heat pumps are becoming more efficient, and I sure hope they are because you know we're basically um, most of the new houses in Texas are being built using electric heat pumps, right? Um, so my old forty year old house has gas, and I'm happy for that, but. You know, such as it is, we're moving toward electrifying. The oil and gas industry here is is electrifying so many things, and demand out in West Texas is growing dramatically. Right. right? So that demand growth. So if we didn't have demand growth, I'd say mm, okay, we can kind of live with what we've got. But the fact is, we've got demand growth, dramatic demand growth, and all we're doing is adding wind and solar. Right. So guess what happens? This summer, and just two weeks ago. We had what the the key metric is what we call net demand or net load, which is to say what your total demand is minus your wind and solar output. We set a new summer record um, back in September. Well, actually in August and in September, um, compared to what the old record was set in 2019, which was the last time we had an energy emergency, except for Yuri, was in 2019. Was in August 2019. So in that four years, we had. 10 gigawatts of, of wind and 15 of solar added. And yet that net demand, that which is the key metric to determine how much gas and coal you need, right? Because um, that's basically how you balance the rest of the system. That was higher in 2023 than it was four years prior, right? So despite this massive addition of wind and solar, we still need more dispatchable capacity than what we had when we had four years ago. And again, this past week, we almost broke that record again two weeks ago. Um, and it was in the winter. And I think that, I think the, the record will again be broken in the winter because all the solar we're adding doesn't help in the winter. Right. right. So, um, that, that record, the last two weeks ago, it was at 8 AM. There was no sun. Basically the sun was just coming up. Right. So I think and we were that, at about, and we were at about 75 gigawatts of demand, right? It was something like that. 75, right. 77, something like that. It was, it was, it was about 77, 78. And we had about um, eight or nine of wind. And so we were right. just below 70 and no solar. So we were just below 70 in net demand. And that 70, that 70 gigawatt mark is kind of where our dispatchable fleet can operate at. Uh-huh. Um, and so if we start to go above that consistently, 
then we're going to run into trouble. And again, I think because of how fast winter demand is growing, because we're not doing anything other than really building solar and some wind, um, that uh, that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem. So again, we fixed a lot of the things that went wrong in URI, but we didn't fix the market. And the market is eventually going to catch up to us to where even a storm like last week is going to result in pretty big outages just because we don't have enough capacity. It's not no. that the capacity we have isn't working. It's that we just don't have enough. And so I think URI in a way was kind of the ghost of Christmas future, um, you know, and, uh, and, and this, and this storm a couple of weeks ago is also a sign that, you know, unless we fix that problem, then uh, it's going to come back to bite us a few years down the road. So, you well, know, I mean, maybe not, maybe, maybe not need to buy a generator right now, but, you know, put it on your list three years from now, start saving for one. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hope in the meantime that we can, let's hope in the meantime, we can get some more real market reform. I mean, the PC just put out a document last week talking about how, you know, all the things that they've done since winter storm Yuri. And it's like, yeah, okay, these are all good things, but I don't see market reform on there at all. I don't see anything to counteract the the the, the impact of the federal subsidies on our market. Um, so is that so, so the market we'll reform? Well, so briefly, what do you mean? And when you say market reform, what are the things that need to be fixed there? Because um, yeah, we've talked before, and you mentioned the federal subsidies, the investment tax credit, the production tax credit. Those are the those are the reasons that, that so much solar and wind is being built, right? I mean, follow the mm -hmm. money. Why would you build anything else if yeah. you're going to get so much federal and uh, uh, federal money to build solar and wind? You'd be an you know yeah. maybe not an idiot, but not a very sharp guy if you're going to build uh, gas or something else that's not going to give you those same kind of uh, uh, incentives. So, what mm -hmm. is the market yeah. reform that you think needs to be needs to happen here? Yeah, and I think the the problem is that. Uh, so far with what's been you know, talked about and proposed for the most part, even from the PUC, is that we're basically trying to get, we're basically trying to solve the problem of underbuild, under, not having enough dispatchable generation, right? Like that's kind of how everyone thinks of the problem. You, know, even, you, know, you hear all our politicians kind of how they talk about it, right? And I just, and what I described was kind of why people do think of it that way because they see like, oh, hey, we need more dispatchable generation. Like let's go subsidize gas to try and solve that problem basically uh -huh. right um but the reason the reason that that problem exists is because we're overbuilding wind and solar because of the subsidies right right that's so that people haven't people need to make that leap of saying look there's so much money there's only so much money in the market right we're paying you know you pay your electric bill every month that goes out to all the the resources that are providing that electricity right and if you're subsidizing wind and solar, that's basically giving them a bigger piece of that pie than what they ordinarily would have, right? Without the subsidies. Right. And so I'm not saying the pie would be zero without the subsidies, but it would not be as big as nearly as big as it is now. Right. And so until we until we basically solve that problem of overbuilding wind and solar, then we're always going to be chasing our tail with having to subsidize dispatchable generation to keep up, right? We're already doing it in a lot of indirect ways. I could, we're running out of time. I could go on forever about all the extra costs that we're, that are being imposed on the system right now. You know, talk about why your electric bill is going up, you know, uh, these days, right? Um, but the fact is that that's the fundamental problem is that we're, we're subsidizing these resources that provide very little capacity value. And so then we still have to in, in find other ways to subsidize the gas generation that's needed to back them up, right? We're building two systems in a way. And unfortunately, that's, you know, we're, we're, because we're not addressing the subsidies by essentially 
making wind and solar provide dispatchable capacity and correcting for the subsidies, right? We're we're falling into the same trap as California is yeah. of you know, again, by failing to address that problem, then we need to pour money into this other side of the equation to right. keep the lights right. on, right? And so our, you know, unfortunately, it's you know, our future is either more blackouts or a lot higher bills until we until we get that the the wind and solar fleet right sized and get it to function in a way that actually helps the grid instead of just kind of riding on the whole system and not providing any capa- real capacity value and the other things that gas and coal provide fuel security right right um, so that's yeah that's really that's what I mean by market reform so, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about market reform because when I, back when I wrote my first book, it was on Enron. And I remember uh, interviewing a guy who was a former Houston natural gas guy. And he was looking at the electricity restructuring as Ken Lay called it at that time. And he said, look, I don't see how this, this restructuring, how this uh, deregulation of electricity is going to help the consumer. We could, this is a whole other hour conversation here, but talk about the market. It, my friend Isaac Orr wrote a recent report for the uh, Center for American, the uh, uh, Center for the American Experiment. He published it on Substack. So there is no such thing as a market in electricity. Uh, is it a service yeah. or is it a commodity? Yeah. Well, I think I think that's the problem is that people tend to view it as a commodity, right? But not all electrons, not all electrons are the same. You know, um, your your gas and coal electrons, you can count on those well into the future. So there's capacity value, right? Because you can say, I know how much I'm going to get from these resources, roughly speaking, within a few percent, right? Um, you know, on the hottest summer day, five years from now, right? The variance in wind and solar is huge. It's, you know, not two or 3%, it's like 20, 30%. Um, so that's, that's what I tell when I say capacity value, that's what I mean is that right. ability to count on that capacity. You know, there's, there's the inertia, the ability to maintain a stable frequency in the grid, right? That, the gas and coal generators can adjust to that. Um, wind and solar can't do that, right? So that's, yeah, I think, so that, so we have to look at electricity as a service more than a commodity and not price it as a commodity, you know, which is what we do. We have a single market clearing price, right? Uh, effectively a commodity price. Um, now it varies by location, right? Right. Um, in, in, in Texas, but at each of those locations, there's a single price and we have to somehow get away from that. Um, yeah. And ultimately it's, I think competition is great. Um, but the problem with competition is that no one is responsible for a liability. Really? The, I mean, ultimately the, the public utility commission is, but no one in the market is right? right. because the, so therefore that makes the public utility commission responsible because they have to organize the market in such a way as to ensure the lights stay on the benefit of monopolies, even though they're inefficient is that, compared to competition is that you have a single entity responsible for planning the system and ensuring the lights stay on, right? So it's the, the synchronous nature of the grid, the fact that it all has to work together is why it's, it's impossible to create a true market in the sense of like, even in other energy commodities like oil and gas, for example, um, you know, the, the market's more fungible because it doesn't have to be synchronized at every minute. You can store right. gas, right. You can store oil. Gas is hard to store, but you can store it. Yeah. Um, you can certainly store oil. Um, you know, there's ways to make the market more fungible. So, yeah, that's that's ultimately what, you know, the, I think the, 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 the fact that, you know, the fact that we have competition in Texas, I think, is a good thing and we can make it work. I still believe we can make it work, but we have to have a reliability standard and we have to understand that 
there's always going to be some form of regulation. So let's make sure that that regulation provides the best service to ratepayers. You know, that's organized around that premise of providing the best service to ratepayers. Um, and, and that hopefully over time, you know, will create the best system. You know, yeah. right now it's, it's, you know, it's broken. There's no, we're not, we don't know who we're trying to serve in terms of, you know, the, the, the progressive left wants us to serve the, the goal of, you know, reducing emissions um, and the attachment to wind and solar, right? Um, you know, there's the uh, there's the industrial consumers that, you know, kind of looking out for themselves and they consume almost half the state's electricity. So they're a huge part of the market, right? Yeah. But they have, they have different needs than you and me as residential rate payers, right? Um, so there's all these different entities and we've got to, you know, get our policy focused on serving the people who need to be served the most, right? So that's, you know, yeah, providing cheap electricity for our industry, but also providing reliability for the rest of us, right? Yeah. Um, now, as you're saying that, yeah. I, I'm, I'm agreeing, I'm nodding my head, thinking, yes, you know, it's a service. We treat it like a commodity in this restructuring that happened. In, Enron led this, right? Enron led this yeah. now 20, you know, 24 years ago. And, oh, we're, you know, we're going to allow this competition. It's going to be great. And so there was conservatives can say, oh, yeah, well, competition, you know, we're all for that. And the and the the liberals could say, oh, yeah, wind and solar, you know, we're going to, we love Enron. And so it was just a, yeah. a confluence of a very interesting coalition. But now here, 20 plus years later in Texas, of all places, we're still now litigating what this should look like and how the this new system, we, we're calling it mar a market, but the more yeah. regulation you put in, the less and less it looks like a market. And instead you've got to tip yeah. the scale. So you've got to put your thumb on the scale for one form or another in order to make sure the thing works in terms of reliability. And I think you're exactly right that here still three years after winter storm, Yuri, no one is responsible for reliability. The buck doesn't stop anywhere if the system fails. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, the, like I said, the legislature and the public utility commission need to, you know, in the next couple of years need to like, look, we're going to set a, we're going to all come together on a reliability standard that suits us. And then we're going to do what's needed to meet that. And again, we're going to not, we're not going to try and be, it's not about being fair to fossil fuels or to, um, you know, wind and solar. It's about serving rate pairs, you know, right. um, and providing Amen. the best service for rate pairs. So we Amen. have to or, have, have that as our organizing principle. Preach it, brother. Amen. <laughs> rate yeah. pairs, the forgotten yeah, the, the, person so here. If I can, if I can change anything, I, I would hope that, you know, we can be a voice for preaching that, that being an organizing principle and form our policy recommendations and research around that. So, you know, we can try and get that back in, in the system, you know, that, yeah. We'll see. It's it's tough because you know everyone has. There's money to be made in all parts of the market, um, and you know people are you know, people are rent seeking everywhere. Yeah. And there's really no one looking out for the ratepayers except for the folks up there at the Capitol who need to you know need to hear from the ratepayers and and serve them ultimately. So right. I think there are and I, and I think there are plenty of you know legislators who you know who have that in their minds. Um, but it's just it's hard. It's easy to forget what are it's easy to forget that when you're hearing from so many different lobbying entities and well, yeah, like and you this, said it's not and, and this, a market a market naturally serves as customers right that's what you're talking about it's like markets are built around consumer demand you know right um it's it's just not quite that way in electricity and so we yeah. have to you know we have to regulate in such a way as to create the right conditions for that right 
Well, and it's become such a complex system. I mean, it's just the complexity yeah. of it is just, it is truly staggering. And in Texas, of course, it's even more complex because it's such a big state. And, you know, the electricity market in the U.S. retail pre- retail sales are about $500 billion a year. Texas is what, uh, 10, well, 15, 15% of that, something like that. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's an enormous chunk, you know, $75, $75 billion a year, something like that. Um, so Brent, you know, you've been on the podcast before, so, you know, I have two final questions I ask everybody and I know you have a new, uh, a new baby. Um, but nevertheless, yeah. what are you, what are you reading? What are, what's on the top of your book pile these days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of kids books. So, you know, the, um, Adeline, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Uh, Seuss and, uh, yeah. yeah, cat in the hat. Um, and, uh, you know, all that. Yeah. So <laughs> I've memorized a lot of kids books, Paw Patrol, um, yeah, I read those every night to the kids. Um, but for my personal reading, uh, actually, uh, you know, you gave me a copy of uh, Question of Power, and that's actually next on my reading list uh, is your book. So um, I'm hoping to get to that soon. I'm reading a book about uh, emotional fitness right now from a, a Christian writer and uh, uh, kind of um, therapist about how to become more emotionally fit, right, to be able to uh, read other people's emotions and also control your own as a sign as a kind of nerdy scientist guy. It's not something I've ever done much of, but when you have kids and you're trying to relate to them and you're in a job like this, that, you know, you got to relate to people every day. It's, it's important to, to, you know, be emotionally, have a good high emotional IQ. Right. So, but yeah, but I'm really excited to read your book next. I'm going to get to it here soon. a boy. Well, thanks for the plug. Um, yeah. so, uh, what gives you hope then, uh, Brent, last question, uh, you look around the world, there are a lot of things that you can, uh, be, uh, pessimistic about what gives you hope. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We just spent an hour complaining about public policy, right? <laughs> um, I think what gives me hope is that, you know, people, um, people still want freedom and people still want cheap, affordable energy, affordable, reliable energy. And that, um, in spite of the forces that are arrayed against freedom and affordable, reliable energy, people ultimately resist that, you know, and, and uh, people don't, people don't for long accept authoritarianism. Um, eventually it does give way to freedom over time. And we've seen it throughout the course of human history. Um, and I think, you know, even as freedom might ebb and flow in our country, that people are ultimately going to lean toward that. You're seeing in Europe now the backlash against net zero and globalism now in Europe um, is starting to come to bear. Um, and so I think, I think that will, you know, I have a lot of faith in people always desiring those things. And that ultimately is going to, you know, in our own haphazard way, lead us toward, you know, making things better for our children and grandchildren than, uh, than it was for us. So, well, that's a good place to stop. Um, yeah. My guest has been Brent Bennett. He is a policy director for Life Powered, which is an initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, you can find his uh, report that he wrote with Jason Isaac called Overcharged Expectations, Unmasking the True Costs of Electric Vehicles on the Texas Public Policy Foundation website. Uh, Brent, thanks for coming on the podcast again. This has been great fun. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. And thanks to all of you out there in podcast land for tuning into this episode of the uh, Power Hungry Podcast. Tune out for the next one. It might be as good as this one. And if you're so inclined, give us a five-star rating, recommend us, all that stuff on your uh, favorite podcast uh, channel. Okay, until then, uh, see you next time. Mm-hmm.